welcome to the this week's episode of the Refold Roundtable podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things language learning. This week, we're talking about how to bridge the gap to native content. I am George. I am the community manager for Refold, and I like languages. And with us today, we have Luke. Uh, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Luke? Hey, yeah. So I'm currently the mod in the Mandarin server, and uh, I was also admin for the Cantonese server as well. Um, been learning languages or in the community for a few years, I guess. So started off, learned Cantonese for just over two years. Uh, then have been doing Mandarin Chinese for over three years, and I've also dabbled in some other stuff like uh, Spanish and Japanese, but, but mostly uh, Mandarin. Yep. And you also have a YouTube channel, and you used to have a blog, right? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> I don't really do the blog anymore. It's more just the uh, YouTube. So yeah, if people just want to follow me there, they can type in Luke Truman on YouTube, or uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well. So that's uh, Luke Truman. All right. And Vanessa? Yeah, I'm uh, Vanessa, also known as Shiki. I am uh, an admin in the Japanese server, um, and I'm a language coach for Refold, also a Japanese learner. All right, and Bree is not with us today. Uh, we're having a special early morning recording uh, since Luke is in Europe and the rest of us are in America. So Rest in peace, Bree. Rest in peace, Bree. Uh, let's see here. So how to bridge the gap to native? So... Yeah, that's actually an interesting question um, for two reasons. The first reason is that a lot of people listening are like, what do you mean bridge the gap to native? Because a lot of refolders start out, for better or worse, with native content, right? So they're thinking, why would we have a discussion on this? But I think in the case of like, um, for example, Luke, you do different Chinese languages. It can be quite difficult, especially because literacy is such a barrier. So I think that Chinese learners are very prone to like starting with graded readers and things. Um, so what's your experience sort of like learning Chinese and going from graded content? And it can be textbooks. It can be graded readers into native content. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I guess my experience with Mandarin and Cantonese have been quite different because of the unique problems that Cantonese has. So uh I don't know which one you'd rather talk about first. I guess uh, Mandarin, maybe, because that's the one that'll be most similar to other people's situation refold, I guess. Yeah, either is fine. Um, I think that Cantonese being like a diglossic language is a unique situation. Maybe, maybe people who are learning like Indonesian or people learning Arabic can relate. But I think for most people, Mandarin will be a more relatable subject because the written language pretty much matches the spoken language. Yeah, okay, sure. So I think, um, f first of all, when trying to get into native content, um, th there's going to be a few things that affect how difficult it is. So uh, as George said, um, he, he mentioned about that glossier. So if there's if the writing system matches what's been said, so there's like target language subtitles available, it's going to make the switch a lot easier. Um, and that's going to be the case with most people in Refold, right? So other than that, I think, um, you know, let's go distance. So something like Spanish for an English learner, as George said, you'll be able to build up your comprehension quite quickly. And then also, I think there's uh, the complexity of the script as well. So like, it, does it use a different script? Is it Latin letters or whatnot? So if uh, it, so, so most people start out with uh, graded readers. So 
I myself prefer to use textbooks. So with Mandarin, I spent about two months using textbooks while also immersing in native content for a small amount of this at, on the side. So, so I'd normally start, say, an hour with learner's materials a day and then maybe like, uh, I don't know, half an hour to an hour with native material. And then after uh, a few months of like intensively listening to the dialogues in there for the learner's material, I've kind of built up some basic vocabulary and grammar and I think I'm ready to start going and using my more focused, intensive study time for actual tackling native content instead. And to me, when you first make that jump, it's really, really difficult. Um, so what I did before is I'd use a lot of like online pro programs like Link or something like that, where my typical strategy is I'd try to find a video that's under five minutes long on YouTube with CC subtitles available in the target language. So say Mandarin audio and Mandarin subtitles, and then import that into something like Link, because then what that allows me to do, I think when you're looking at, you know, trying to understand difficult content in a new domain, there's going to be potentially three issues, either one grammar, two vocab, or three, the way that natives pronounce the sounds or when they speak is actually slightly different to how it would be worded in a textbook. Maybe there's certain contractions or sounds emitted, or maybe it's just overall faster and you're struggling to keep up. Um, and, and I think the speed is especially more difficult if the grammar's backwards, because then you just need more time to process and there's, it. Right? There's dialectal variation too, right? So a good example, I'm American, you're English, we do not speak exactly the same way. And um, I've, I've listened to learners content for Mandarin, even the stuff coming out of like uh, NTSU, coming out of like Taiwan. Um, they tend to speak very standard, not like your average Taiwanese person speaks. Um, so it could be probably quite shocking to to hear like, quote unquote, textbook language, and then to go listen to, to say, Taiwanese YouTube. Uh, I'm sure there's a bit of like some disparity there. Yeah, I, I think that's a bit of a weird situation with Taiwan because they think of standard Mandarin as closer to Chinese, like the variant in northern China. Whereas what most people actually speak like is uh, going to be quite far removed from that. So especially like the, um, what's it called? Like the rolled tongue sounds like the in, in Taiwan, they don't tend to pronounce it. So it tends to be almost like a sound for like the sure. So, so they don't pronounce those a lot of the time. And uh, like, for example, I remember the first time walking into 7-Eleven and someone said, that's uh, like 14 bucks or whatever. And I heard... And I thought that was said, said 44 because I didn't hear that it was actually supposed to be but they don't pronounce like the H sound. And and they do in learners materials. So there is a lot of those sound changes as well. Yeah. Um, but I think generally speaking for the sound differences, if you have the transcript, you can pick it up. So what I did is I just intensively listened to it at the start. So I'd pick a short video, like I said, three minutes or something like that. And make sure I read through, and if I can understand it written down, then I know it's not a vocab or a grammar issue, and it's just a case of working on my listening. So I'd listen to it, see what I can understand, and then the bits that I don't, I'd pause, look at the transcript, read that sentence again, and then take it away to, until I can eventually go through and listen to the whole thing, understanding it 100%. So that was like my sort of 
uh, strategy that I used, pairing that with like more extensive uh, immersion. And I guess I don't know a lot of people in Reefall do the sentence mining approach, but I was never a big fan of that. So, you know, I've I've gone back and forth on sentence mining, um, and I think it's very useful if you enjoy doing it. Uh, so it sounds to me like your method of getting from from quote unquote learners content, so like textbooks, graded readers, to getting to native content is to first read it and dissect it and then listen to it. Uh, yeah, pretty much because uh, I think the when you first go into native content, there's the vocabulary and the grammar issue that you have to deal with first and foremost. And if you're trying to deal with that while just doing pure listening, I feel like you just can't keep up with it. So it's going to you're going to be on the back foot before you even started, right? Whereas if you can at least, if you've got the vocab and the grammar under your belt when you start, at least you know, and you know what's coming up, you can listen out for it. And I feel like it just makes the process of acquiring words a lot more easier. And uh, when I went through like that, eventually I'd do one video a day. And um, I guess on, on Link, they allowed you to put the audio in a playlist. So every time I did a video, I put it in this big playlist. And then after like two months, I had, you know, like 60 odd videos, all about three to four minutes long that I previously studied in detail. And it made up this like playlist of stuff that I would listen to when walking to work, when on the bus and just passive emotion. Oh, right. Yeah. And I'm also a big fan of Link and sort of working through things. Um, and you mentioned specifically like, jumping in obviously to videos and transcripts um and i'm actually a big fan of just like you said importing things that have matching cc you know closed caption subtitles uh into like link it doesn't have to be in link you can you can do anything that allows you to do you know look up uh while you're you're you're, you're watching or listening um and the reason for that is i think it's paul nation he says that like the number of um, the number of lexemes, like your your root words that you need to understand spoken language, somewhere around four to five thousand, whereas it's about double that to understand like a book, right? So it's a like pretty big, pretty big gap. Um, and I definitely think that intensively working through subtitles is one of the best ways to get into native content because they're just so much easier than actually reading an adult book. You know, if you had opened up uh, Santi, right? Three-Body Problem in Chinese, when you had just started reading in Mandarin, do you think you would have been able to get through it, Luke? Um, I wouldn't have enjoyed it, that's for sure. It, as to whether I was finished, I mean, when I first started, I was very stubborn. Uh, there, was, there was one book that I read, Shafu, uh, that I... I think it was like maybe 60, 70 pages and I barely understood what was going on and I just stubbornly worked my way through it, but I did not enjoy it at all. Uh, but I, <laughs> and I I wouldn't recommend that either, but I think um, it's just part of the learning experience, I guess. But I think what what as what George said, I before I even tried to tackle books, um, I spent two months going through textbooks with that intensive approach as well. And then spent about another half a year doing it with, um, subtitles before I even attempted uh, native books and when I did jump into native books for the first time in my experience the easiest domain is um, translated non-fiction about learning 
So the first book I read in Chinese and Spanish was The Linguist by Steve Kaufman. Um, I've also read stuff like Benny Lewis, Fluent in Three Months, um, Atomic Habits and things like that. Because um, even if sometimes they have a bit more words, the grammar is normally extremely easy and just straight to the point, which I think is a lot, uh, a lot easier to get going compared to most fiction, at least. Yeah, it sounds like we have similar approaches, actually. Um, I also am a big fan of light comics, uh, and this is also doable for Mandarin if you have a little bit of elbow grease and, uh, you know, use an OCR pop-up dictionary. They've got a really good one, Hanping, for Android, which uh, kind of lets you just, like, jump right into comics. But, you know, because you know, comics, again, they tend to be dialogue-heavy, uh, like, say, a textbook dialogue or, like, importing a video and intensively reading through a video and link. Um, but I'm also a big fan of going through textbooks. And when I say textbooks, I don't mean like going through and doing all of the exercises, but I think that something like intensively working through textbook dialogues using a program like Link is a really good way to get started. Because again, they tend to be dialogues. They tend to be uh, quote unquote practical vocab. They may not be practical if you're waiting to output for two or three years, but for a lot of people who do want to like kind of start speaking soon, uh, they tend to be sort of goal-oriented vocab. Um, and I'm also a big fan of going through and working through 30 or 40 textbook dialogues and then starting with something. Um, I personally would move into graded readers uh, and maybe podcasts before moving into native books. Um, I personally do not enjoy working through subtitles unless I'm watching along at the same time, which unfortunately Link is not super great at. Um, things like Language Reactor are, are a little bit better for that, I think. Um, and uh, Migaku as well, I think. Yeah, and Migaku is quite quite good for the languages that it supports. An ASP um, player. Shout out. Yeah, an ASP player too. Um, so, yeah, I definitely... I think that there's something to be said for working through, uh, you know, textbook dialogues and then going and importing um, your own material. And I think your method is very interesting, sort of working through. And you mentioned that you read Steve's book, The Linguist, uh, and then some things like Atomic Habits. And I've also experienced that, especially with, with something like with a romance language like Spanish. Um, I think I read the linguist, you know, he talks about like, uh, does he mention Lao Tzu? He mentions like the tree, uh, and all this different stuff. Um, and a lot of the vocab does jump out at you, uh, especially in a romance language. Yeah. It was the, uh, crooked tree of Lao Tzu, which when I read the Chinese translation, that was actually the hardest chapter because, uh, it used a lot of the original language that was in the book, I think. Now, uh, have Either oh, sorry, I, th I think it was Zhuangzi, Zhuangzi and the Crooked Tree, if I remember. Okay. Have have either of you read many comics? Um, so I think Vanessa's going to be super quiet this episode because I feel like she basically just jumped straight into native content. Is that right? Did you do any comprehensible yeah. Japanese or no. anything? I mean, uh, well, so, okay, what I tried to do, I tried to be a good refolder at the start of doing Japanese. And I tried to do the Comprehensible Japanese YouTube channel. And I tried to do um, the other Comprehensible Learner type of content. But then I was like, oh my God, I'm so bored. So I just went and uh, rewatched some anime that I've seen before. 
<laughs> that's what I did. <laughs> and that's a valid tactic, I think. Um, Luke mentioned translated nonfiction, things like um, uh, Steve's book about learning, you know, the linguist is what it's called. He also mentioned um, Atomic Habits. Uh, but I think that a really good way to prime yourself is to watch something you're familiar with in mm -hmm. another language or even doesn't even have to be watch it can be read this is why people always talk about harry potter right because it's in like yeah. 80 different languages um i personally yeah. don't think harry potter is like that easy but because people oh, know no, the story yeah because people know the story they kind of like they jump right in they already know what's going on they can follow along so i think mm -hmm. that's a valid strategy vanessa even though like you kind of jumped into native content you jumped into native content more or less that is stuff you already knew from yeah. just having been an anime fan yeah kind of like the harry potter strategy like uh i watched uh i was super obsessed with the show yu yu Hakusho when i was like a tween so i was super familiar with the story already and everything so i just went and rewatched that um in like stage one stage two a for japanese and it was like i knew what was happening but I didn't know what people were saying all the time, but that was fine. It just kind of like carried me through until my comprehension was higher and I could move on to other things. Yeah, you uh, that, that's a great show. And uh, Hunter Hunter. Yeah. I think it's the same author. Right? <laughs> yeah. I yeah, I haven't seen that one though. Yu Yu Show is really, really popular. I think the, the Filipino dub is actually called Ghost Detective. Ooh, um, that's a good title. Yeah. So uh, I definitely, it's definitely sort of like a shonen, but it's yeah, really, it's it's like a classic, you know. I also I also grew up with it. I watched the English dub, and I've seen parts of the Filipino dub. But uh, you know me, I've got ADD. I do not sit through series. I I give them up. Mm. Um, on the uh, textbook thing, can I just go back and say one point that I wanted to bring up before we uh, move on? Uh, I think one good thing about doing this content that's curated at learners is when you're first starting, um, if you jump straight into native content and you've got like dictionary lookups and grammar lookup, you don't necessarily understand what you're looking up. Either you look up a word and it comes up with like 20 different things that it could be, which is very true for Japanese, for example, or you might see a word and it's actually conjugated differently. So you don't recognize it at first or there's using a grammar that you don't know. Whereas if you do it with like a textbook, all the vocab and grammar that's needed to understand what you're about to read or reading will be explained in that chapter. So I always focus on the dialogues and use the other stuff to try and help me understand that. Um, so I think any anything like that that helps you understand more um, of the dialogue, I think is a good thing. So like, for example, Satori Reader as well for Japanese. I've played around with a little bit that is um, really, really useful as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, and also just you know, Satori Reader is more of a, a sort of a graded reader program. Uh, they've got their own sort of in-house materials you can't import into it like you can with, say, Link. But I think that there's something to be said for just graded readers. They do have like glossaries and uh, ideally like limited character count. Like there's the um, Oh Mandarin Companion series for Mandarin where it's like you only need to, you know, like 300, you know, Chinese characters to be able to read it. Um, yeah, and I think, and I think those can be quite useful. 
And I think with Satori Reader, it's not if you if you click on a word, it doesn't just tell you a definition. It tells you the specific definition for the context that you just saw it in, because they've like specifically done all the definitions that way. Um, so I think oh. that that's where the difference is. Whereas normally, if you're watching a TV show with like say Japanese and you look up the subs, there could be like ten plus definitions. And if you're struggling to understand the sentence anyway, you're not going to re really be able to tell which one is the right one in that context as a beginner. You know, I'll say uh, a couple interesting things about doing lookups that can be confusing. One, oftentimes the most common words are the trickiest words because they tend to carry like grammatical information. You know, they're like helping words. So they can be quite flexible. That's why when you look up a, a word as a beginner, there's a good chance that you'll get hit with 10 or 20 different definitions. The other thing is that uh, as a Chinese learner, I have to say that I find a little bit uh, jarring coming from a language like Filipino is in Filipino, they use one long hyper-specific word, uh, whereas Chinese functions a little bit more like English, where they would say something like um, to, to hit a character for type, right? So they, they sort of do these sort of phrasal things, right? Like hit electric voice, right, to give a phone call, right? And that can be a little bit difficult if you don't parse them as one complete unit, um, which, you know, the very nature of having like, say, Japanese or, or Filipino, where they have one very long word, you know what you're supposed to be looking up. Um, so like, you know, I'm talking about Luke, where like in Link, you can do sort of quote unquote phrasal lookups, um, where sometimes a Chinese word will actually be basically a phrase, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely true. And I think that's what, especially it's worth uh, mentioning for those that may not know already. Um, like when you, when you look at written Chinese, there's no spaces. And it's the same with Japanese as well. Like, so you, you have to know where to pass the words yourself as opposed to it just already being spaced out for you. Um, Link does try to do it automatically, but whenever I've looked at it for Chinese and I think Japanese, it's not the best. So I found Link to be a lot more frustrating to work with with Chinese and Japanese compared to any other language just because when they put when they pass the words for you, it's not always correct and it can just be confusing when you're a beginner. And then you have to edit it manually as well. Yeah, I've heard that the parsing is not so great for those kinds of languages on Link. Yeah, unfortunately, <clears throat> I think that tends to be the norm. Um, there are quite a few tools out there for Japanese that might have better parsing. Um, but I definitely think that Chinese parsing is not great. Uh, I know Cole um, also goes by Hulk. He he tends to work with parsers himself, and then like everything he reads, he he messes with the parser for his program that he uses. I think he uses Magaku. But yeah, it's quite difficult to parse when you don't have spaces. Yeah, I, I think he made his own parser to feed into the Migaku tool for Cantonese that works better than the default one in the browser. So I think he shared that with community with the community, and uh, everyone else has been really enjoying it. Because I think that's one of the main challenges. Um, and if, I, I guess the more, it is worth saying like quite quickly, the more words that, you know, the easier it is. So once you kind of get say a thousand words under your belt, which might sound like a lot to someone new, but you know, after a few months, if you, you can get it quite, 
quite quickly a lot of the time there'd only be one or two words you don't know in the whole sentence and when it gets to that point you know it's quite easy to pass because most of the sentence you already know so i think this is only really at the very beginning and um i think in that sort of framework as well like maybe that's where the graded reader things come into it because you can learn new vocabulary in situations where they're introducing it with a smaller number of unknowns so you can pass it a bit easier whereas i feel something like uh let's say spanish um but because there's so more cognates and it has spaces and the grammar's kind of close to english apart from the genders and the conjugations um it's going to be a lot easier just to jump in yeah for sure <clears throat> i think um cognates go a long way in making things comprehensible even when they're not quite exactly the same uh just having that same sort of feel to latch onto can can definitely help now you mentioned luke uh liking the nonfiction stuff uh especially the translated nonfiction. so how important to you guys is initial domain when going out and trying to jump into native content um so by by initial domain do you just mean like whichever domain you pick first or yeah like choosing a domain to start out with do you think that that really matters for getting into native content uh to, to be completely honest i've never it's never really something that i've done before um i tended to i mean when i was starting with mandarin um i tended to watch a lot of the same sort of thing anyway just because that's what was recommended i was focusing on taiwanese mandarin and there's a loads and loads of like these romantic dramas sort of things um that they were all the most famous shows so i ended up watching them anyway and also uh again same as shiki i actually re-watched some anime that i've already watched when i was younger and the ones i tended to watch were all shonen anyway so like i always start with hajime no ippo and then went for a few similar ones because that that's what i enjoy to watch so i find i tend to stick to sort of what i like anyway so i tend to put myself in a domain just by watching what i like i don't think Unless it's something really niche or specific, like, say, Chinese history or politics or some fantasy stuff, maybe, then I don't really think there's much need for domain. Because if you, say, have a romance show versus a crime or a thriller, I think most of the words are going to be the same anyway, apart from maybe in a crime show that might have one or two chemistry words thrown in. But not normally it's nothing too complex anyway. Yeah, I pretty much agree uh, to a degree. Um, because my approach with uh, beginners is like basically just just do what makes you not want to quit because at a certain point, like everything is going to be uh, pretty much equally incomprehensible anyways when you're first starting out. So I wouldn't get too hung up on the domain or whatever it is. <clears throat> if it's something super complicated, like, um, like Luke is saying, like, history or politics, then maybe it's something to be cautious or aware about. Um, but yeah, I don't I mean, really I think, think it matters as I much. I think that's language dependent because actually yeah. you know, with, if you're an English speaker learning French or Portuguese, um, things like history and politics will actually surprisingly be a lot easier because that's where the, the vocab hmm. overlap is. Um, so, you know, sort of like um, we share the upper level vocab with French, 
but not the lower mm-hmm. level vocab, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, this is again probably like a little bit language dependent, but definitely for a language like Chinese or Japanese, where there's no vocab overlap or little vocab, because you know there's actually a lot of English in in Japanese, a lot of you know, yeah. kind of English words. Um, I definitely think you're right. Uh, and then also with with Chinese, Luke, I guess you also have the added burden of like they tend to reference themselves a lot, you know, lots of like uh, four character idioms and like throwbacks to things that, that just part of the Chinese cultural canon. Yeah, I think <laughs> um, so, so, so first on what you said before as well, when I was learning Spanish, I found science was one of the easiest domains to to read because it was just all English anyway. So uh, th- 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 I completely agree with that. But with with Chinese and the self-referencing thing, um, yeah, even like like I was just watching like some slice of life Taiwanese drama about these two guys that end up sort of raising a child together for some weird circumstance. And um, there's even like random historical references in there. Like I, I didn't realize it before when I watched it the first time. Uh, but I watched a few episodes recently because one of my friends was watching it, and like, they were referencing like like Liu Bei from like the Three Kingdoms period, and like um, referencing some Zhuangzi and stuff. And like, I didn't even realize it when I watched it the first time, but because a lot of it just goes completely over your head. Yeah, and then does this happen in Japanese as well, Shiki? Yeah, I was just going to say that um, if you're a Japanese learner and an anime fan you're probably going to know about um, certain shows that are uh, infamous for being difficult to understand, even in English. Like if you watch a dub, an English dub, or if you watch it in Japanese with English subtitles, even even then it's going to be difficult to grasp. Like usually the stuff that's really um, philosophical and existential, like Ghost in the Shell, or imagine watching uh, Fate Zero, as a beginner in Japanese, you're going to have a rough time unless you're super uh, familiar with the plot already. Yeah, I, I tried to watch um, Phase. So when I was in Taiwan, most of my classmates were from Japan and they were like big anime fans. So sometimes would like go back to my house to like just put some anime on the TV in the Chinese dub and try to learn that way. Uh, and one of them recommended Fate Zero. And we watched like this. I'd been learning for about four months, I think, at the time or maybe like five or six and simple shows like like one piece or whatever i could understand fine at that point and then they put on fate zero and i honestly had no idea what was going on for like the whole 20 minutes so confused it do be like that that show is like that (laughs) it's difficult to understand even in english what's what's going on and to give some background you started mandarin after having um gotten conversational in cantonese right yeah, so I studied Cantonese for about two years. Um, so like, I could have decent conversations. I wasn't like super fluent to the point where I could talk about like history or politics or anything like that. I def- definitely lower level than my Mandarin is now. But uh, I could still like you know go out for dinner with my friends and enjoy like a group conversation over food, which I found really difficult at the start because of like all the background noise and stuff. But I kind of got used to it eventually. And uh, could understand most TV shows apart from the period dramas. They confuse me still. And uh, yeah, and also all the a lot of the characters and grammar I knew already because there's a big crossover with Mandarin that way. So like I was going in with like a huge head start into Mandarin. 
Right. And I just wanted to give that background because you said four months learning Mandarin and I, I wanted the the audience to be aware, like four months learning Mandarin after two years of, you know, learning Cantonese. And uh, you stayed in Hong Kong for a while. Is that right? I went there for like a two week holiday. And then I also spent about a week and a half in Guangdong, uh, just doing like I did couch surfing, actually, um, which was one of the best language learning experiences I've had. Uh, was actually using couch surfing because I just stayed with a bunch of I stayed with three different natives in Guangdong, and each one of them introduced me to their group of friends, and I spent the whole time hanging around with them. So, like, from a language learning point of view and from a saving money point of view, it was pretty cool. Oh yeah, I think couch surfing's neat. I've heard that a lot of things like that have died uh, after the pandemic. Unfortunately, I, I feel like they're not as lively as they used to be. Um, but yeah, that's cool. So. Definitely, some domains, depending on your language, are going to be harder than the other. And again, it's going to be like language specific. Um, so what counts as native content to you guys? Do you consider translated stuff by natives for natives to be native content? For example, uh, the uh, controversial question. It is a controversial question because early on, Luke mentioned that he uh enjoys reading like translated sort of i don't know I don't, personal development books right uh nonfiction, and that that begs the question do we consider those native content i i think so i mean uh, i should probably preface like i, I would prefer reading stuff in the original but the problem is when you first get started you don't necessarily know what's there and I just think it's a nice starting point because I think the difficulty is a bit lower. But I think uh, even in some languages, like I went over to German refold server just to kind of window shop a little bit and see what was there. And um, I was like looking into like native content in German. And, you know, the only thing I've really heard of is dark. And then, you know, there's like a few infamous books that I won't mention. Um, you know, but uh, so so when I, when I asked what to watch, actually they were saying, well, in Germany the dubbing culture is huge. So what most native Germans watch growing up is other countries' content dubbed into German, and that's like a lot of their industry is just dubbing. So if that's what all they do, then I don't really know how you could say that's not native content because that's what all the natives are consuming anyway. So yeah, I see that point for sure. Um, yeah, I definitely think that Latin America. Uh, has the same sort of phenomenon where like they grew up watching the simpsons and the american and british tv um, so yeah i'm definitely team uh dubbed or translated content by natives for natives counts as native content it can sometimes be missing some of the cultural aspects but you get that anyways you know like definitely i've read like uh isabel allende She's got like a book set in Japan or not, not set in Japan, set in like um, Indonesia or Malaysia. And like she's I think she's from from Chile. Right. And like even native books from, say, Latin America or China are not going to be set in Latin America or China. So I do think that there's an argument to be made for counting these as a native content for the purposes of like immersion. Uh, I want to just say like one point that maybe a lot of people might not have thought about before. If, if you're consuming translated content, 
in your target language. I think it's better to be translated from a language that at least has some historical or cultural similarities. So like, for example, German takes a lot of stuff from English. And I remember one uh, scene quite specifically. So one, one of the first anime I watched with my friends when I was a teenager in the English dub was Death Note. And um, without getting into too much spoilers about what was going on in the plot, there was this one time when Light Yagami was introducing himself to this woman because um, he was trying to find out her name. And he introduced himself as like, oh, I'm light as in moon. And I didn't really know what that meant. And I kind of just like skipped over it. But when I was watching the Chinese dub, because they both share the same Chinese characters, when he introduced himself and was like, oh, it's light, it's this character and the one from moon. I could see exactly what they were doing and they do the same thing in Chinese and Japanese and the way they introduce themselves. So like because of the similarities between the two languages, I felt like it's better watching uh, Japanese content dubbed into Mandarin as opposed to English because I feel like you get more of those references. I can definitely right. see um, the, the value and merit of uh, translated content. I'm not going to tell people not to immerse with it because that would be silly. Um, but I don't know for me, maybe I'm just a purist. I don't know. It's, it's just not the vibe. Yeah. I don't feel like many Japanese learners ever really immerse in, uh, like dubbed content. I know it exists. Like I've seen it on Netflix, like the Netflix originals have like Japanese dubs, I think. Yeah. But... And Disney plus has a lot of, uh, Japanese dubs of things like Disney movies and, uh, the Star Wars shows they're making are dubbed in Japanese, and those are popular with people who enjoy them in English. So, uh, I remember Matt telling me that he tried to watch like Breaking Bad's translation into Japanese when he was like five or six years in or something, and he was just like, "What am I doing? This, this is terrible. I want to just watch it in English." At this point, <laughs> yeah, I think at a certain point it, that does come up. It's like. I might as well just watch this in English. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> but yeah, now, I... the, the funny thing you mentioned Breaking Bad. Um, I think it had a, uh, a Hispanic uh, remake and I can't think of the name Metamorphosis or something, but it was remade, I think, uh, for a Latin American audience. So um, not a, not I mean, I, I'm sure there is a translation or uh, or a dub of the original but they just went ahead and, and remade the whole thing so i've heard that was terrible though i don't know if that's just i did I hear it was bad i heard it was pretty bad yeah so i mean so so, so to, to circle back to um getting into native content it, for me um as shiki said i think she started with uh because she was familiar with it so when i was starting with mandarin chinese I think the problem that most people have is they're not familiar with any shows originally in the target language. So watching dubbed shows that you know is one way to do that as a stepping stone, in my opinion, to get to more authentic content. So I would consider it native, but I would consider it less authentic um, because I prefer watching shows originally from that country. So like if I was learning Mandarin, I'd want to watch, you know, like Wuxia programs, like uh, like martial arts heroes sort of things. Um, and I, th I think that's fine. Yeah, it's definitely language dependent. Yeah, and I think that's changing. I feel like a lot of the the newer Chinese donghua are kind of popular. Like, I feel like people who are kind of into anime are starting to embrace it, and like things like you know King's Ranking and um, other 
Chinese shows are becoming popular. Uh, King's Avatar. Um, I think Link so Click hopefully is quite in the future as well. Yeah, Click is a good one. So I think maybe in the future we'll see less of that. But that is a, it is a big problem. When you go into a language, it can be deceptively hard to find content, even if it exists. People will say, uh, I'm learning Filipino and there's no content. I'm like, it's got as many speakers as German. There's, there's content, you just don't know where to find it. So people result to some pretty drastic measures. Uh, on the Refold subreddit, there were people talking about like reading translated religious literature because they couldn't get their hands on other stuff. Because what it comes down to is like, it can just be hard to find content that you're interested in um, if you are brand new to the language and it's not a language that has content that you would have, you know, that's culturally exported, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, and I, I found that more common with languages that, um, well, it was with Cantonese, I saw it when they, I've seen people recommend reading the Bible in Cantonese because... There was this um, belief that there's nothing written down in Cantonese. So for, I guess just, just to explain the situation for those that weren't aware, I mean, George mentioned diglossia earlier, which um, all it is is the language that people speak day to day and the way that they write is different. So they write down pretty much everything in standard written Chinese, which for all intents and purposes is effectively Mandarin. Um, like the same grammar, similar vocab and stuff like that. But what they speak is different. So they might, you know, I, I always say, imagine if you have like uh, someone speaking in like, uh, if you have someone speaking with like a really strong Southern accent with loads of slang in America, and then the subtitles are in like standard American English, like there'd be loads of differences, but there'll be some similarities sort of thing. Um, and because of that, people kind of believe that there's no content available to read in Cantonese, but there actually is, there's like quite a lot of literature um, I think Little Prince was translated into Cantonese as well, and there's like this whole like storytelling channels and like some um, things on YouTube where you can actually find subtitles in Cantonese, but it's just really hard to find if you don't know where to look. Yeah, so diglossia is a situation where essentially people have two languages: the written language and the spoken language. So some good examples are going to be like Mandarin and Cantonese, uh, where standard written Chinese is essentially written mandarin um arabic is this way where they've got uh standard arabic and then spoken arabic which is it's sort of comparable to if people in portugal and spain and france all said that they spoke latin but they really didn't but then they all shared a common written language which was sort of like latin uh that's sort of the situation yeah exactly so it's effectively like uh, watching the Spanish TV TV show, but you've got Latin subtitles because none of the subtitles match. So, which is why you can't use, like, uh, you know, you you can't find transcripts in most shows you're watching, which makes trying to bridge the gap to native content a lot more difficult. Dang, other languages have it rough. Yeah, I think so. I think um, for better or worse, uh, in some ways, Japanese learners have it kind of easy when it comes to. To things in terms of like tooling technology uh content because again people going into japanese are usually familiar with japanese content either through anime mm -hmm. or something else uh japanese yeah, movies I'm, kaiju movie i'm aware of how spoiled we are <laughs> 
And like the OCR in Japanese is really good as well. I, I was mm. messing around with um, was it Game Two Texts the app, and I was playing Persona oh, yeah. Four, and you can actually put the you know, I, I bought Persona 4 on Steam, downloaded the game transcripts like well, from the game files in my folder on the computer, put it in games to text, and it uses OCR and cross-references it with the transcript, so it comes with the closest thing in the game files. And, like, it's basically 100% every time I look at it, and I just have to drag this little box around it. And you've got, like, replayable, like, language logs and stuff and all the dialogues in the whole game, and I'm just like, how is this a thing? Like, I struggle to find, like, even one enjoyable game in Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you have overlap of people wanting to learn Japanese who are also uh, devs in their day job. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be really common. Um, either devs or systems engineers. Yeah. Which system engineers, I don't, I don't think they actually, you know, can program stuff. They can program machines. But I've also noticed a lot of like systems engineers in the Japanese immersion learning community. Mm-hmm. So, uh, George, have you learned any or have experienced learning any languages with Diglossia then? Because I think, uh, really, I think if there's subtitles available or transcripts available for what you're reading, it's just a case of just working through slowly and you'll eventually get there, you know? Whereas I feel like if that's not available for me, that's where the challenge is much bigger and you have to start getting a lot more creative with what you do. Um, so I was wondering if you have any experience with that. Because or... I've had to do quite a few weird things for Cantonese that people might not have done before. Uh, when it comes to jumping into native content in a language that doesn't have a lot of subs, I do have experience. So um, I, I, I've dabbled in Indonesian. I took like a course in it and um, like learned it off and on over the past couple of years. I'm not great at it, but it's relatively close relative to Filipino and um, it's category two. So it's like not that difficult of a language to get into. It's diglossic, but <clears throat> I'll speak to Filipino, which again, is not really diglossic in the sense that um, the, the written language doesn't match the spoken language, but it doesn't have subs. But the good thing about Filipino for better or worse is that there's a lot of code switching. So one thing you can do to ease the burden if you're learning Filipino um, is focus on content that has a lot of English loan words. Um, so it's quite easy. You, you find a book that has a lot of dialogue with Taglish, right? Where there's a lot of code switching and uh, in English loan words. And it definitely lowers the burden for getting into reading. Um, you know, if you jump into pure Filipino, uh, you've got almost no overlap in terms of vocab, and that can be quite difficult. So one of my my biggest tips to people who come in to learning Filipino is start with a Taglish book, um, and it will be a lot easier. Now, nowadays, we do have people who like pay to have like matching transcripts made of YouTube channels and it's come a long way in the the five or six years that I've been learning Filipino. But back in the day, we didn't have that. We didn't have any matching subs. So um, my my method to getting into native content, uh, and I, I pretty much jumped into native content after I finished the whole textbook treadmill, uh, because again, graded content just isn't a thing for Filipino, uh, was to focus on stuff that was very colloquial with a lot of English words. 
it might just be um, the fact that we are in this immersion learning community and the Refill Network, but it seems like there's been this recent explosion of tools for language learning. Like I just thought of the whole Whisper AI thing to automatically transcribe YouTube videos and other things. And it's like, it's kind of crazy because it's like the best time to learn a language is today. And if it's not today, it's tomorrow. Cause it's like, there's just so much coming out recently, it seems. Oh, it's amazing. Um, when I first started Filipino in the dark days, uh, the dark days. We didn't. We didn't. <laughs> we didn't have. Uh, it wasn't supported on Link. Link just got it like two months ago. Uh, Tagalog.com did not have the frequency deck, so uh, the owner, uh, Jacos, he started paying people to like license their YouTube content and put matching transcripts. And then after he got enough of those, he used that corpus to generate his own frequency deck, like get on the refold sort of. Um, ideology and like nowadays coming in you've got like tons of videos with matching transcripts you've got a really good frequency deck up to the first 2000 most frequent words um and i think a lot of languages are that way you know when it comes to like jpdb.io right like all of these cool tools are coming out so i think we are kind of living in this like language learning boom where like luke when did you start when did you start learning cantonese luke uh, 2016. 2016. So that's quite some time ago. And I imagine the tools were just not there. When I started learning Cantonese, I tried to Google what was available and it came up with CantoneseClass101.com, a complete teach yourself Cantonese. And then watch TV shows, I think was more, more or less the, oh, they, and they had Pleco then, thank God. Um, Pleco was a lifesaver, the dictionary app for Chinese that has Cantonese support as well. And I remember when I was about four months in to learning Cantonese, uh, one of the, the online polyglot called Ollie Richards released this uh, thing called Cantonese Conversations, which to me was like, this is the best thing ever. Um, he basically got about, I think, five or six friends from Hong Kong, recorded about 30 dialogues of them just talking about different topics between themselves, all about five minutes long, and then just hired someone to transcribe the whole thing and, you know, kind of picked out relevant words for vocab lists and stuff. And for me, that was like, okay, wow, I've actually got, you know, 30 audio clips here, all five minutes long of full speed native conversation with transcripts. And that was like the... That was like a revelation to me because I've never had I never had something like that before when I was studying Cantonese. So. Yeah, that's pretty common. I think um, not on that scale, but I've I've definitely heard of people learning um, Hindi and Swahili, where they do just hire someone to transcribe, say a podcast or a news broadcast. Uh, people resort to things when they don't have a lot of material to work with especially material at their level, like, say, spoken language. Yeah, exactly. So I also, that also kind of inspired me to kind of create my own resources. So when you can't, um, you know, when it's not available, you have to start getting creative. So again, I did things like there's a website, Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R.com, um, which has a bunch of freelancers on you can hire. I also hired uh, italki teachers and did a few things, really, either you know, 
paid someone to write a transcript or if I have a text, for example, uh, there's a lot of written Cantonese on Wikipedia. So, for example, some languages that don't have a lot of written media, a lot of the time there is on Wikipedia. So you can just, which is also a cheaper alternative to paying someone to transcribe a tran uh, audio because that takes a long time. Sometimes you can just hire a friend to bring up a Wikipedia page and just say like, oh, I'll buy you a pint if you, you know, record this five minute or as you clip reading this out for me or something. And you can do it that way and kind of work off the goodwill of your friends. Um, other things that I did was when I was trying to get into TV shows, I'd often watch, say on the Monday, I'd watch episode one and two in English. And then on the Tuesday, I'd watch episode one and two again, just dropping the subtitles. But what I'd often do is when I was um, watching with English subtitles, all the words that I saw in the English subtitles that I were coming up a lot. So, for example, this one Cantonese show, Triumph in the Skies, was all about like airplanes and, you know, pilots becoming a pilot and flying planes. So there was lots of, you know, words I didn't know, like flight attendants. So when those things like that came up in the English subtitles when I was watching it, if I couldn't tell by listening, I'd just make note of the English words that I needed to look up. And then look it up for when I went to watch it without subs the next day. And from that, you could kind of slowly, uh, kind of slowly learn words that way as well. Yeah, you, you mentioned um, having friends make stuff. There used to be a website called Rhino Spike. Uh, and I think it still exists, but I'm not sure if it's still super active. And it essentially yeah. functioned that way uh, on the barter system. Like you would record something and get some points and then somebody else would record something for you. And you could request things to be recorded. Uh, but unfortunately, I'm not sure it's very active anymore. But definitely bartering with buddies, um, you know, I'll give you a, a pint, right? If you record this for me, is a good way to get people to actually record content for you. Yeah. And with Rhino Spike, I, I don't think it is active now, but like all of the stuff that was recorded before is still on there. So actually, for Cantonese, there's quite a lot of content. In fact, I remember when I was searching through the archives on the Cantonese stuff, I found quite a few posts from Kazumoto off uh, Ajat trying to get people to transcribe stuff in Cantonese for him, which I thought was quite an interesting novelty. But yeah. That is interesting. I totally forgot that Katsumoto tried learning Cantonese at one point. It's kind of a meme how all the Japanese learners tried to learn Mandarin or Cantonese or Korean at some point. It's just inevitable. <laughs> Yeah, that does seem to be the case. Uh, I think people, a lot of people do it the other think, way around as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't think Korean was that popular ten years ago. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's more of a present day thing. Um, and also, since we're on the subject, I want to give a shout out to all the people back in the dark days of language learning who have made all these resources for us and got us where we are today. So uh, thank you to all those. Uh, unnamed people in the past <laughs> yeah for sure definitely and like speaking of cantonese cole with his canto captions project where he goes through yeah. and he hand subs uh like avatar and uh gives people matching subs uh i really also appreciate people who do create tools and uh resources for the rest of us i really do uh kick myself for uh not discovering ajat back in the day and, and learning Japanese at that time, because uh, by now I would have been beyond fluent if I started back then. But at the same time, uh, I'm, 
I have to wonder if I would have just given up because uh, it was kind of the Wild West back then. We don't we didn't have anything as nice as refold. Yeah, it, it would have been more difficult. Uh, still doable, but like a lot of people are spoiled, especially in the Japanese community where they're coming at it with like, I've got all these like one click tools to automatically mine a whole show. And like back then it was like copy and paste was your only way of sentence mining. Um, yep. And, you know, the it was actually surprisingly hard back in the day to find matching Japanese subs. I could believe it. Uh, on, on, on that point, though, um, I mean, it's probably a little bit off topic, but just but n- now things are becoming very easy to look stuff up. You know, you've got lots of especially e-readers. So, you know, I mentioned Satoru Reader with Japanese earlier. Um, you've got stuff like Link, which is great for especially... Uh, European languages, you've got um, Pleco for Chinese. I, I think it's and also Kindle as well. It's it's worth pointing out. I think when it becomes these are very useful in the beginning, but past a certain stage, I think once you don't have to do as many lookups, I think it can be a bad thing to keep on using these tools because it gets you in the habit of looking stuff up too much, which is why after I think about a year into Mandarin. I switched to reading more on paperback and taking the time to actually, you know, have to go up to, go onto my phone, draw out the new character with my finger onto the like sketch pad and look it up that way. I found A, it makes me be, be more selective about what I'm actually looking up. And B, when I do look it up, it sticks in my head a lot better because I had to draw it out. So I do think there's merit to kind of going old school with a lot of this stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. and I think I totally agree that doing being selective and taking more time for your lookups kind of leads to you actually remembering better. Um, there's something about those instant lookups that can be like, sometimes you, you're so focused on understanding the material that you do the lookup, you get the, the definition, and then you move on, and you don't actually process the word. But I do want to take it back, and uh, on the note of like making content, one thing I've always wanted to do with the Refold podcast is to subtitle it. That way people who, you know, and like subtitle it and put it on link, right? Let people go through it and um, and sort of like, it would be a fun way to, to give English learners who make up a large part of our community some really cool content with matching subs. Um, well, and I think cool. it's something, yeah, I, th- I think it's something we could actually do. I don't think it would be super difficult. Whisper um, AI. <laughs> or so, you know, actually YouTube's default transcripts are pretty good for English. We would probably just have to go through and like fix them by hand. Oh, I've yeah. always wanted to do that. I feel like it would be so great to like people coming from like Mr. Salas, our, our Spanish speaking partners, you know, YouTube community, um, give them some like some, that's from that same domain that Luke was talking about, like talking about language learning and, uh, it's a very narrow focus, kind of like not super difficult if you're in the community to get into. Yeah. Yeah. English learners listening, let us know if you would like us to do that. Yeah. Let us know. Um, and on that note, uh, I think this is a great organic stopping point how to bridge the gap to native. So uh, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Refold Roundtable podcast. If you're tuning in for the live premiere, make sure to join us for the after party immediately after the podcast in the Revolt Discord. If you love this episode and want to hear more, you can listen to past episodes on YouTube and Spotify. 
If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to give us a like and leave a comment to let us know. If you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, we would love to hear from you. Suggest future topics in the Refold Discord. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Refold Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and maybe even learned something new. Projects, events, and content like this podcast are only possible thanks to our generous patrons. If you liked this and want to see more similar projects, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Visit community.refold.la slash Patreon-benefits to learn more.